Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. Create one-on-ones your reps will thank you for and use Exvoyant to help your sales managers create unique plans for every rep on your team. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we are joined by Stephen Brody, Vice President of Sales for Bevy Labs. Stephen is an Army Special Operations Sniper turned sales leader. He's driving some impressive growth at Bevy with a platform some of the most iconic companies in the world use to build and scale their in-person communities with great success, and I'm super excited to learn a little bit more about that. Prior to working at Bevy, he ran account development and inside sales at MuleSoft. He started with seven reps and took that to a much larger organization that I can't wait for him to share with us and ended up standing up and running the business operations function while he was there. Here's a fun fact about Steven. He's worn a Hawaiian shirt to work every day for nearly 600 days, and if you can see on the camera, he is not breaking that streak today. He's also the proud owner of a lighthouse in Wisconsin, and I can't wait to hear a little bit more about that. I was first introduced to Stephen by my good buddy, Ralph Barcy, and I have been excited to have Stephen on our show ever since. Stephen, I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to our show, and thank you so much for joining us. Seriously, thank you, Rob, and, and first of all, to even be mentioned in the same uh, company as Ralph is an honor. And also, I think, I think the, the piece you missed in your introduction, because you had Kyle Morris on here, who is, who is also in 2nd Ranger Battalion right before I got in. Um, you should have probably introduced me as the other shittier army ranger turned tech sales leader. So, uh, well, we'll make sure the audience is well aware of, I, I refuse to put the shitty label on you, man. <laughs> First of all, you should know I'm, I'm a, I'm one of those guys that's a flag waver, but I'm also, so I'm very appreciative to guys like you that are willing to serve. So thank you. Uh, but I'm also super intrigued. Like I'm one of those guys that reads all the special operations books, the Navy SEALs books. I read all of those things. I can't wait to learn a little bit about how that prepared you for life as a sales leader as well. I think that would be a fun part of our conversation. Yeah, it's it's timely too because Army Special Operations just killed uh, Al Baghdadi, you know. And, yeah. and and I tweeted this and it got me in a lot of trouble. But really, if you had to break down the the special operations community, it's like naval special operations. You kill the current number one biggest target, and two people write a book, and both of them claim to have killed Bin Laden. And <laughs> Army Special Operations, you kill the current number one highest value target and uh, you give credit to the dog. So I'm proud to come from the army special operations community and, and I'm happy to share more about how that's actually relevant to sales. Cause I really do believe it is. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll let's, we'll, we'll for sure get into that. I, but again, thank you for what you've done. I, I'm so excited, Stephen, to have you on. Can you start this conversation by just introducing Bevy labs to our listeners? You got sure. a lot of people around the world that are excited to hear from you and I'd love them to learn a little bit about what you do. Yeah, yeah, you know, Bevy, like our, our number one sort of metric for success is one of these days people are gonna hear that we're, uh, we're Bevy and they're not gonna think that we're the sparkling water company. Uh, <laughs> or the, uh, the, whatever, the, the sparkling water purifying machine or whatever it is. But anyhow, I digress. So Bevy is the platform that, like you mentioned, some of the best companies in the world, companies like Salesforce, Slack, Atlassian, Asana, Adobe, Snowflake are wow. actually using to build and scale their in-person communities. You know, the way you used to build these practitioner groups or user groups or communities or really just drive any sort of in-person events in the past is you basically had to exponentially increase the amount of work or, you know, exponentially decrease the amount of sleep or hire more headcount as you scaled. And we actually have a platform that gives you the idea, like the opportunity to create sort of a federated model where you're franchising out your in-person community. And when we think about, you know, the, the sort of impending potential downturn in the economy, like revenue efficient scale is going to be critically important. No and, doubt. And, you know, and the other piece that's really interesting to me is like in a world where in SaaS in particular, like there's this race towards feature, feature function parity, 
you know, like, can you really tell the difference between the best in breed, you know, marketing automation system or sales engagement system or whatever? Like maybe, maybe you can and maybe you can't. But does Salesforce really have to have the best CRM if they have the most activated, engaged community where people are literally staking their careers on, on being, you know, like activated and engaged in really building on that platform? I, I, I'd say the answer is no. So I think what's amazing and interesting and exciting about community to me and what's exciting about what Bevy is sort of powering is we're helping companies like actually create a defensible asset and then get the data to actually validate that these in-person events are actually doing something and driving substantive value. And, and by doing that kind of elevating the role of community leader in the way that like a gain site did for customer success by giving them the data to show, Hey, when I take a specific action, it's actually driving impact and improving our bottom line. Yeah. So it's exciting. Super cool. Yeah. I can see why you guys are having so much success. I mean, for, like you said, you're, you're leading a team of around five right now. So you're starting back what you did at MuleSoft. You're, you're, you're going to rerun that. You're going to grow, grow that again. But I can see why you'd have so much success. Those are not some small companies that you name drop that are depending on you to help do that. So congrats on your success, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get into you a little bit. I, one of the things that I love is you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit. You made a great statement that I would love to, to start to introduce you and your story. You once said that all your best moves, all your best things came by accident. Can you share a little bit about that and what that means with your story? How, you know, how, how'd you get started? How'd that get you in sales? And ultimately, how'd that get you at, at Bevy? And then we'll get into life as a sales leader. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I, I think that, that all the best decisions I've made by accident is absolutely true. You go back <laughs> to, like, you know, how I ended up in tech sales. First of all, I think it's important to state I probably wouldn't be in tech and certainly not in sales if I hadn't grown up as a sort of poor kid in San Francisco who accidentally got a full ride to this really incredible school where some of my friends were so rich and wealthy that literally they had their names on like two lecture halls at Cal. Wow. And, and I say that because I remember being eight years old and I was leaving my best friend's literal mansion in Seacliff and his nanny was giving me a ride to the Muni stop so I could take two buses home at eight at night. And I mean, pardon my French, I was, you know, I was young, but I remember looking back at like his house sort of like trailing off in the distance. And I said to myself, I was like, you know what, Fuck this, I'm not dying poor, <laughs> you know? And I was like a poor kid from San Francisco, the product yeah. of a single mom. And look, I loved what I did in army special operations. It was the best most energizing work I ever did. But again, like that chip on my shoulder about, you know, not wanting to like have to scrape by to make ends meet, like that's really what drove me out of the army. The interesting piece going back to like all the best decisions I made by accident, I accidentally joined the army. Uh, wow. To be, to be perfectly clear, like I was, I thought I was taking a workout class sophomore year of college I should have known there's no 5 a.m. workout classes at UC Santa Barbara. And it was actually an Army ROTC <laughs> class. And, uh, and, and what's funny is I actually ended up in special operations by accident because I had two cadre who were former Army Rangers. And they basically told me, hey, man, as an officer, you've got to wait four years once you commission to be able to try out for special operations. But if you enlist, you know you can get a contract where you're guaranteed at least a shot to try out. And so I actually ended up declining my commission senior year, wow. okay. which did, does not go over well, by the way. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. And it was the scariest decision I made, you know, up until that point in my life. And it was the best decision I ever made. And, you know, I, it gave me the opportunity to, you know, go to war five times and really experience and do the things that people sort of lie to their girlfriends about doing when they're in the army. So it was a incredible decision. And, and frankly, like I said, I, I only was sort of compelled to get out because I felt like the fact that I was going to war every six months and could barely make my rent in Seattle, like just didn't sort of mesh up. Mm. And, you know, I came back home to San Francisco because it's home, right? And tech just happened to be here. And I had done sales in college. You know, I did the like dial for dollars annual fund thing. And what's funny is I was, I wasn't good at it. But since I was so terrible at talking to women, 
I actually used it as an opportunity to just practice on the phone. So, so you know, I'm still terrible at talking to women. I'm sure my wife would say the same thing, but it was, uh, that was actually my first foray into sales. What's funny is, you know, getting acquired by MuleSoft six years into my tech sales career is sort of ironic or sorry, getting acquired by Salesforce is sort of ironic because the, the first job I applied for and was told I was underqualified for was an SDR role at Salesforce. So yeah. it, it and also then you led that team critical. that Salesforce said was so good. We're going to acquire you. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah. Best, congrats best on that exit best. too, by the way, that's, that's an amazing story. What you guys helped architect at MuleSoft. And, and it's one of the things that I'm glad you're sharing because I mean, everyone that's listening should be aware of that massive exit that you guys had at MuleSoft. And for you to be one of the people who helped make that happen, there's a lot of credibility you instantly get. And I'm excited for you to share some of that with us today. So thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, any success I had was a function of the team that I was able to surround myself with and that I was surrounded with. Like, I absolutely can't take any credit. You know, MuleSoft taught me one thing. It's funny, when I, when I first applied at MuleSoft, I still was in this phase in the real world where I was afraid, like, man, the caliber of talent I worked with in special operations was so great. I'm never going to experience that again. And the reason I worked at MuleSoft, by the way, I had no idea what MuleSoft did. I had no idea <laughs> what integration really was. Yeah. I didn't understand what APIs or RAML or any of that stuff. But what I did know was this anxiety and this chip that I had that I was never going to work with that sort of caliber of individual that I had worked with in special operations, that was instantly alleviated the second I interviewed there. And wow. I think the reason that MuleSoft got acquired, it's like, is it the platform? Is it the product? Is it the market? Like, I don't know. I, you know what I definitely do know it was, though, was the people. And I think, you know, when you get to the bottom of sales and success and, and driving enterprise sales, like, at the end of the day, it's it's a people problem. And, and if you solve that, like, get the right people on the bus, you know, figure out the seats later and figure out what direction you're driving, but you're going to find success. Well, that's, that's a fantastic introduction. So thank you for sharing that. We got uh, a lot of stuff. I can't wait to talk to you. I, I'm so excited for this conversation, <laughs> man. You, you're a guy who has done it. I mean, you've, you've helped companies get into high growth mode. You've helped companies stay there. You've helped people uh, get to that point where you say, okay, opportunity here. I, I got it done. So then you went looking for your next mission and that's what led you to Bevy, right? I mean, mm -hmm. exactly. So, so that mission mentality is something I wanted to start with. I wanted to talk, you know, again, I told you, I appreciate what you've done. Again, I, I'm one of those guys that's so grateful. Like our head of sales is also someone that was in the military. And uh, so I, I, I get that. One of the things I, I thought would be fun to start with is are there specific ways that your special ops background and your time doing that time of service did that prepare you to be a successful sales leader? I mean, you've already alluded to a couple of things. I'd love to learn and get a little more insight on if that prepared you and if there's anything you've stolen from those days that you've put into your playbook now as a sales leader. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you what it, what it taught me, but I should first probably tell you what I had to unlearn. You know, there's, there's actually what's really interesting is, you know, a lot of people talk about radical candor. And yep. Kim Scott's amazing, and I think it's a, an incredible book. But if you think about the world in which special operations units exist, like ours, we were going to war every six months wow. and we were basically tasked with killing or capturing high value targets and the ability and the trust to go and execute on that kind of mission dictates that you've got to be amazing at your job. You've got to be unbelievably competent mm -hmm. in all your core skilling and your training has to be top notch, but it also is like your ability to go and execute on that as a unit is predicated on the individual members of that team having an incredible high amount of trust in each other. Because if I come in a door and I go left and you're supposed to go right and you both, we both go left, like, and there's some guy in that right corner, you know, we're dead. Yeah. Like we die. What, wow. that, what that means though is like, because I trust you've got my back, the level of trust allows me to communicate in a way where I can be short, I can be terse, and you can know that it's coming from a place of deeply caring. And I don't have to communicate or contextualize because you know I care. And on top of that, there's, you know, a, a sort of reality where 
there's a saying like a bad decision is better than no decision in war. But, but in the real world, that's absolutely not true. So if you think about those two things, like unlearning those habits where it, like I sort of took for granted that if I was being direct and honest and upfront with people that they understood I cared, like unlearning those habits that as a habit was critically important, both as a leader and as a salesperson, Hmm. but also, you know, recognizing that like there's stuff you got to sort of cling on to and there's stuff you got to let go of. Like you can't expect that people are actually going to show up on time, (laughs) you know, as a salesperson, like it's actually like the number one litmus test in any interview. It's like, if you have a like a scheduled call with someone, do they actually show up on the dot? You know, are they there on time? Are they there early? Like, I love that Zoom sends me a notification that lets me know that someone was there at 9.54, just ready to rock. Like, when I'm interviewing someone like that, like, I, I already know this is someone who's, who's on their stuff. Super but, cool. But what special operations taught me, you know, I've, I've sort of dug into what I had to unlearn, but what it really taught me is, like, You've got to be absolutely uncompromising in who you hire. Like the reason you can trust a special operations unit to go and execute on, you know, killing and capturing the highest value targets in the world is because there's an assessment and selection process that ensures that only the best people make it through. Like you might start with 360 people and 16 make it through. And when you do that, you know, when you create a process that's designed to ensure you have the best people possible, like you only attract the best people as well. Like, cause the best people appreciate that level of rigor, right? Like eagles want to soar with eagles. They don't want to fly with pigeons. So when you think about building a great sales team, I think there's a couple of things like one, you've got to both build the kind of team where it's not just like the best people possible, but it's people who are so driven to win. They actually inspire those around them to win and create the kind of model where it's like, if I see a guy walking with a tan beret and I'm in the army, I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And how do I do that? Yeah. You know? And then the second piece is like, when you're assessing for these people, what special operations does well is they have like a systematic process that screens people out based on like the core values that the unit embodies and it's structured and it's really testing your ability to actually like, thrive in the kind of conditions that are analogous to going to war. And throughout the process, you're like reviewing your peers and you're sort of back channeling them and that weeds people out. Now that's a lot of like talk about special operations, but let's translate that to building a great sales Good. team. Cause that's what I was going to ask. I said, this is awesome. So like, how do we move that over? Because I am, I am fascinated by this. You use two words that I think are really important words. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I really want to like get this here. Like you started with saying uncompromising and who you are. The, the, uncompromising is super cool. We've all heard slow to hire, fast to fire, stuff like that. But your word uncompromising was followed by two words, assessment and selection. The way yeah. that you assessment and selection. I'm sorry I'm writing down that because like this is super cool to me because you're right. Whenever you look at the special ops guys, like like I've read, I think there's not a single book by a special ops guy that I haven't read, Stephen. <laughs> you want to know what the formula for those books are? They always start with the first third to the first half of all those books is about the training and the selection process. Mm-hmm. You're smiling. You're like, you know, I'm right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the first time I read one of those, it was it was like, okay, I get that your training was hard. Move on, you know. Yeah. But then when you see what that training led to them, their ability to overcome and do, it starts to real. I realize I see now why the selection and assessment process, it wasn't just the acceptance process. It was the assessment and selection process. Yeah. Can you talk about doing that as a sales leader? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I I'll absolutely dive into the sales piece, but I think what's funny about what you said and why I was laughing is I literally remember like probably a, almost a decade ago. Now I was like scrambling up a hillside. Actually it was a little less than a decade ago. I was scrambling up a hillside and we're like taking contact And I'm like running up this hill for the fifth time and we're sort of under like withering fire. And I literally remember thinking like, at least I'm not at rip, right? Like at the time, the selection process I went through was the Ranger indoctrination program, which was the acronym was RIP. 
Really, that was what you thought. You're getting shot at. You're like, at least I'm not doing that again. At least I'm not at rip. And then I remember thinking like, shit, I should be like 15 feet to the left right now. You know, I kind (laughs) of, I kind of dropped the ball. But when I go back to that selection process and the analog to sales, like here's what great sales teams do. First and foremost, they assess for core values. And the way they do that is they, they actually don't start with saying, here's our core values. They actually go and they take the data. And this is what we did at MuleSoft. We said, what do the best salespeople all embody statistically? Like, let's measure it. Let's, like, categorize it. And then let's figure out how we can actually assess for that. And the way you do that is you have, like, structured, calibrated questions where each interviewer might only be assessing for one or two core values. But really, a value could be something like coachability, right? Because they can yeah. statistically validate that coachability drives success. Love and it. and the interviewer who is focused on coachability, by the way, we'll talk a little more on coachability. Let's talk about something different so I don't get tangential here, but we talk about like, uh, like grittiness, right? Like someone like will actually have a structured calibrated question that they ask every candidate they ever interview. So they actually get a relative sense of like what good looks like. Yeah. And by the way, there's a matrix that says, this is a great answer. This is a good answer. This is a okay answer. This is a poor answer. And you actually split that up across different interviewers. So they're only asking certain questions. It creates a better candidate experience because they're not getting asked the same questions three different ways. Yeah. And then on top of that, it's actually helping that candidate understand as you contextualize why you're asking these questions, what the core values of the team actually are and what success actually looks like in that role And then when you couple that with realistic job exercises and back channeling people, it's essentially like a special operations selection process for salespeople. I love it. That's super. Yeah. You know, I like that. So you have people that are the experts in in assessing and selecting for just that value. Exactly. Exactly. If there's there's four values that matter, then there's four interviews you're going to have to do and do well in in order to clear and, and clear a selection and assessment process. And, and by the way, revalidate that those values actually matter through mm-hmm. each iteration of your company's sort of maturation, right? Because, you know, early on, like what I've found is, you know, when you've got a five person team, you might need like a pioneer, you know, who's blazing trails. But when you get to a place where you're in hyper growth mode and you really need to make sure that you're focused on process optimization, you need someone who paves roads, yeah, not blazes trails. And Put the machete away and stop hacking through the jungle and let's start putting down asphalt now. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's a different skill set. So yeah. reevaluate whether or not those initial sort of pioneers are still successful. And if not, those aren't your core values anymore, right? Like values is such a, like a nebulous idea, but values should back into success. That makes so much sense. I've never heard someone bring that approach. We, we talk a lot about hiring Almost everybody talks about get the best people and <clears throat> our culture and, or one of the primary roles of a sales leader is to make sure you get the best team. Mm-hmm. That's the first time I've heard an approach like that. That's super insightful and it's, it makes so much sense, but I can see why your background in special ops would help you realize the importance of it and, and actually be able to bring that to a team like that. That's super cool. Totally. We actually knew like, like actual passion for sales, which by the way is measurable. Um, intellectual curiosity, growth orientation, coachability, like those statistically were correlated with success at MuleSoft. And we actually could go and like prove that someone embodied a passion for sales by asking the right questions or prove that they were genuinely growth oriented by asking the right kinds of questions and actually pushing and digging and understanding what good looked like. And I think that's really, really critically important. So, you know, this is something I didn't know we'd get into. And this always happens. We get great guests like you. And we are really selective in who we try to put on the show so we can go deep like this. And you're you're already going down the rabbit hole with me. I love it, dude. So I just wrote down three. I want to make – I want to kind of push pause and make sure – give you a chance to give me a few more. Like some of the – because, again, anyone listening is familiar with the success story that you put together with your teammates at MuleSoft. And so one of my thoughts was, oh, well, if you hired for specific um, 
core values. What were some of those? Mm-hmm. You said passion for sales, growth orientation, coachability. Are there any one or two more that you might throw out to our listeners that these were things that led to a great growth story? Yeah, I think I think the the one single most important thing you need to validate in any like successful sales hiring process is do they have a specific tangible track record of excellence in every role? Right? Like is there quantitative or qualitative data that validates they're amongst the top 5% of their respective peer group in every role? So if you think about it like when you take like the core values, you take that that like notion like are they someone who has a track record of achievement that demonstrates they're in the top five percent that answers are they an a player the questions about core values answers do they embody our core values which like we talked about dictate that someone's going to be successful and then the last piece and this is where you need to make sure you're doing like realistic job exercises that test this is are they the right fit for this role right? Like you don't want a square peg in a round hole. They might be great for MuleSoft or for Bevy, but they're not great for this role. So you can find an A player who embodies your core values and is the wrong fit for the role. And if you don't seek out those three things, A player, embody your core values, right fit, right role, like you're not building the kind of special operations sales team that's going to find a hyper growth exit where you're commanding the kind of sort of revenue multiples and valuations that great companies end up finding. What a killer blueprint. A player, everybody talks about. Core values, the way you've described that and that you assess for those, first time I've heard it that way. And the third, right fit, right role, it's a great blueprint, and I can see how you can break it down and execute on that and bring that, that emphasis around execution just to the selection process. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even gotten into execution on the sales process yet, but so mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's, that's killer, man. I love that. So that, that was your first thing you said that you, that you learned and you brought was this uncompromising, uncompromising in who you hire. And then you, you, you dove into that. Anything else you'd add on that before you if, if, see if there's anything else that you, yeah. that you brought from that? Yeah. So I was, I was tapped uh, actually while on my third deployment to go join the sniper team in second ranger battalion and i actually like most people are absolutely stoked it's sort of like one of the more prestigious teams to be a part of and and i actually was furious because i had this great team on the line and i loved it and you know i by the way i literally never even looked down the scope of a sniper rifle in spite of the fact that i'd gone to war three times in special operations unit you know i was already been in iraq twice afghanistan i never even looked down the scope of a sniper rifle Two years later, I won our internal sniper competition. Wow. Like, why Why was that? First of all, I am like, I have the shakiest hands of any person I know. I don't go out on the weekend and shoot guns. For me, like, I, I don't think I've shot long range since I got out because it still feels like work. But yeah. what I focused on and what they teach you in sniper school and what they teach you in special operations is, like, if you focus on the fundamentals, like, the score will take care of itself. So... I am a, like, poor kid from San Francisco. Like, I was in a sniper team where half the dudes were, like, you know, for lack of a better word, like, more educated than you'd think bumpkins from Alabama who spent their weekends in tree stands shooting deer. Like, they came in, and their floor was so much higher than mine. And I had no idea what I was doing. So... All I did was focus on the fundamentals, body position, breathing, like actually understanding the math behind reading wind. Wow. Like by virtue of doing that, I was able to rise to a place where I was highly confident in my own abilities. If you translate that to sales, right? Like, do you understand the fundamental competencies that it takes to be successful? And are you doing daily deliberate practice to make sure that you're great at those? You know, it's like Bill Walsh has that sort of ism. It's like focus on the fundamentals and the score takes care of itself. He wrote a book called that. It was, a, it was interesting hearing you say to a score, I immediately thought of his book and now you bring Bill Walsh up. So yeah, I'm with you, man. Yeah. It's like focus on the fundamentals and you know, you can hit any dude in the head, but like, like it's, it's true. Like in sales at the end of the day, it's like the best 
like salespeople are fundamentally just typically better at qualifying people in and out early in a process, guiding them along a buying journey, delivering value, commercial teaching. These are all like competencies that can be taught and like improved over time and measured. And the reality is like being a great sniper is not about shooting deer every weekend. It's about making sure that when you're in the prone position that your feet are flat on the ground. Wow. What a great lesson. You know, and I love that because I'm listening to you talk about developing the competencies by focusing on the fundamentals. And now I understand more why the selection process was so important because I'm thinking of, like you said, you know, these were developed competencies, the best of you, you rattled off, you know, 10 mm-hmm. sales competencies and you're like, they don't just have it. They learn it. And so yeah. that's why if you do have that passion for sales, if you are growth oriented, how coachable are you? I can see why understanding those core values makes it so you can, you can, you can create this highly, highly competent team that will do much more than what the industry average says they should be able to do. Yeah. And, and then there's, there's one last thing that I learned and, you know, okay. I started this podcast with a joke about the difference between Naval Special Operations and Army Special Operations. I have a ton yeah. of respect for them, but I think that, you know, I go back to the fact that Delta Force said like, Hey, give the dog credit, you know, the dog's name's still classified, but give the dog credit. It's like, love that. Be, be a quiet professional, man. Like stop gloating about your success and celebrating your wins. Like, Focus on celebrating the success of your customers. Like, I don't think you have to like genuinely be jazzed about what you're selling. I think that's kind of bullshit. You have to be genuinely jazzed about the idea that what you're selling is like meaningfully changing the lives of the people you're working with, right? Like we have this with this internal metric. It's like, like how many community leaders have been promoted by virtue of championing our product and building and scaling an in-person community? Right. Like when like a company actually appoints a chief community officer and they're using Bevy, like that will be success for us. But like, I'm not going to go on LinkedIn and gloat about the fact that like Rachel's crushing it and she is, and now I'm gloating about it. So maybe I'm a hypocrite, (laughs) but like, I I really like, I'm, I'm sort of bothered that in sales, we do a lot of like self-aggrandizing sort of celebration of how great we are as salespeople when really like, if you think about one of the easiest ways to find success as a sales organization, it's like find opportunities to create and identify ways to make your customer a hero. And by the way, I hate that phrase because no one talks about like, how do you specifically do it? Right? Like, How are you, are you like going and creating speaking opportunities for people? Are you putting them on a podcast like this, right? Like, are you helping them build a platform for their careers? Are you, are you using your customer success and sales team to put together the kind of QBR deck and prepping them to deliver it themselves with you there to support them that allows them to show their boss, like, I'm awesome. I got this. Yeah. And like, that's how you find success as a salesperson. Because no one trusts you, right? Like Gallup said, this is the least trustworthy like profession out there. You know, no one wants to talk to a salesperson. Think about it. Like you go to Nordstrom's and someone follows you around where you're trying to buy socks and you like cringe because we're now so conditioned to like go on Amazon and, you know, I'm 34 years old. So I, I'm, I guess I'm a millennial, but like, I don't, I don't want to talk to salespeople. You know, I, I grew up like pre-social media, but I've been conditioned to think like, shit, if I need groceries, like, let me prime now this. And so like you are an inconvenience. Alexa, send me this, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, you've got to, you've got to address that and you can focus on being a credible, trusted advisor. And the way to do that, by the way, is to skill up in what it means to be a credible, trusted advisor and how to do commercial teaching. Can I ask you a question about that? I mean, this is yeah. good. I ha- I hate to even say anything because I just I love what you're saying, man. I'm just I'm burning through a notepad right now as I listen <laughs> to you, bro. Um, you made a statement that I I really uh, I agree with, and I want you to go a little deeper on that. That's, by the way, those three things: yeah, uncompromising on who you hire, focus on the fundamentals, quiet professionalism. Bam, that's genius. Love it. Okay, 
you said sales is recognized by uh, those who study businesses, et cetera, as the least trustworthy profession out there. I found mm-hmm. that. In fact, mm-hmm. when I'm training uh, organizations, we talk about, you know, in the absence of a relationship, they don't trust us when they think we're in sales, period. They just don't. Yep. yep. So any thoughts about how you as a sales leader address that with your team? How do you, how do you help reps build trust? I think that's a really cool conversation. We don't have that very often on our show. I would love to get your thoughts on that. So, so first, like, uh, the, the number one way to build trust and credibility is to like think about how do you fundamentally extract yourself as like a salesperson or as a company from that process. Okay. Right? Like you're, whatever you're selling, let's say you're in technology, like, if you're in SaaS sales, what you are selling is some sort of tool or platform that fundamentally solves a problem. But you have people, if you have any success as an organization, who have solved a problem using your platform. So how do you teach people about that? That's like commercial teaching. But like, how do you really solve the problem of trust? Like, if you as a salesperson, if all you focus on is connecting your best customers with your prospects and let them sell for you. Like that, that is like fundamentally going to shift how people approach you as a company. Like, again, (laughs) go back to the idea that no one trusts you, but also recognize that like people actually spend more time doing their own sort of research offline and digitally than they do speaking to you as a salesperson. That's right. Like there's this, I think as Gartner did this, uh, paper on elevating the value of sales interactions. And it says people spend 17% of their time speaking to a salesperson. They actually spend like 5% more time doing research offline, right? So if, if all you did was like find ways to connect your prospects and your customers, ideally in person where they trust you the most, right? Like, cause I can yeah. look you in the eyes and tell you like, this platform has fundamentally changed the way I scale my community. Like if someone can tell you that face to face, you believe them. Like I can't tell you how many times I've gone to like modern sales pros or revenue collective events. And like all of a sudden I'm like taking down notes on what platform I should be buying to solve some sort of problem internally that our sales process has. Yeah. That's great. I love it. I love it. Be, that, that, that's a great piece of advice on how to build trust. I think that's a, I think that's a topic that we don't really address enough. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, cause I, I mean, people try to act like they're buddy buddy before they are. Like when someone starts calling me, they slap my back or they're calling me, Hey dude, you know, whatever, before <laughs> we really know each other. I, I just feel like they're just trying to like, they're trying to make me feel like I know them better than I do it. And if you're trying to operate in the position of trust before you've actually earned that, I think it can backfire. And I love your approach of saying, listen, I'm going to be a connector. I'm going to connect you to other people that, that we've solved problems like yours. I'm going to connect you to people that have had the experience of working with us. I'm going to connect you to people that will help your network so you can ask them that question, whatever else. Very, very quickly, they'll start to trust the things you do on their behalf, I think. I love that. That's really good. I, I totally agree. And by the way, you talk about backfiring. I want to talk about like, where was the challenger sale fundamentally, like not necessarily wrong, but completely misunderstood, right? If you think about like the hypothesis of the challenger sale, it's that this certain type of salesperson, this challenger right. salesperson statistically more likely to be successful relative to like problem solvers. And one of the personas they call hard relationship workers. builders, yeah, right. hard workers and relationship yep. builders. Yep. That, that book, nowhere in the challenger sales methodology or process is it understood that building a relationship is not important. There's just people whose like default for like driving success in sales is to focus on their Rolodex. That's the like relationship salesperson. Doesn't mean don't build relationships. Doesn't mean like be a dick to your prospects because you're trying to (laughs) challenge them. Like relationships matter. You know, they erode when the economy erodes, right? So recognize that. Like that's where you need to fundamentally actually deliver real value, but relationships matter. And I think, you know, if you're a, like, if you're me and you have very little sort of difficulty being direct and honest and pushing people to like sort of understand their problem through a different lens or reframe their mental model, then you probably need to say, okay, wait, like 
I need to like over rotate on actually building relationships. Yeah. And again, it's like building a relationship can be a, a few things. It could be like, you know, finding commonality with someone, but really it could also be like, like we talked about elevating their career by giving them a platform. It could be connecting them to people in their network who are finding success, solving a similar problem. Like it can be like just like disrupting their expectation of who you are and what you bring to the table. It's like, look, if I'm a six foot three white dude in tech sales, you probably expect me to be a douche and to show up in a blue blazer. So I'm going to have six three and I have a blue blazer. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, man. I'm, I'm playing, sorry. Man. Yeah, I know. And like, I look, love it. Maybe, maybe I am a douche, but no, like I'm, I'm at laughing. least going to show up in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> And disrupt that, that that mental pattern that you got, right? Oh, Steven, this is awesome, dude. <laughs> it's so good, man. This is so good. So I've got uh I've got about five, six more minutes before I want to start to wrap the way I wrap everyone. Yep. And there's a couple of things I want to get into because you've given us a killer blueprint, and I love this the way that you framed it and like lessons that learn to help you accomplish missions. Okay. Yep. And I mean, I look at it as that you had multiple missions and multiple times that you were deployed as a, as a member of our armed forces. And now you deployed with MuleSoft with great success. You've now redeployed with Bevy, obviously with great success. And these lessons that you've learned helped you with a mature, take a company to mature phase, as well as go back and do it again with somebody that's in the younger phase. Mm-hmm. Is there like one or two lessons that you say this really helped me uh, whether it was a mature company or a younger company, I got these sales leaders of, of companies of all sizes. Is there like, besides the three things, you know, compromising on who you hire and, and, and the other two things that we got down, is there like one or two things that really stand out? Be sure to get these things right as well as you build your cadence as a sales leader. Mm. You know what, like, I think what's been really challenging for me is I, like, if you asked me that question three years ago, yeah. when I was still at MuleSoft, I would have said like, operationalize and wrap process around everything. Okay. And I actually think that answer is still generally correct, but only at a certain stage of maturation for a company. So what I mean by that is like, if you're early stage and you're still trying to identify whether or not you have product market or go to market fit, yep. like, and you over operationalize everything. And I've seen this, I've seen my friend do it at a company and, you know, luckily he's found a ton of success and sort of unraveled this, but you know, they're, they're series B or C now, I believe, and they're finding a ton of success. But early on, you know, and I had this inclination too, it's like he overprocessed everything instead of finding out like, what is my hypothesis about how we should sell? And then how do I get directionally correct and create the kind of guidance on like, this is generally what we should be doing and test and collect the data to analyze whether or not it is the right process before codifying it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I am like someone who, again, I go back to like focusing on the fundamentals means that there's a, a like proper way to do things in a proper process. I think the thing that is really important to understand is like, that should be the goal unless you are at a stage where you have not validated the process even exists and even is like worthy of codification. That makes tons of sense, dude. And so it doesn't matter what stage you are, make sure you got that right. I get that. That makes tons of sense. And I can see that if you try to put too much process too soon, you're going to waste a ton of time, a ton of energy, a ton of resources on something that might've just been a quick win or an early indicator that doesn't really stay true at scale. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And here's the thing. As soon as you identify and you hit it, like you hit the nail right on the head, but as soon as you do identify what the right process is to codify, immediately surround yourself with the kinds of people who can stamp that out, codify it, make sure that there's enablement pathways built around it. And really like are those sort of 10 X multiplier type roles. I look at them like the analog and special operations is augmentees as we call them. Like, Sniper section was an augmentee. We were an attachment. We were attached to a team like the dog team, like the canine team was an augmentee, but you're not going to go chasing, you know, Al Baghdadi 
without a canine team or a sniper team, they're in tow. And I think that one like way to massively ramp up your success is actually to hire ahead with those augmentee type roles. Yep. Because otherwise you'll find like my biggest stress as a sales leader right now is constantly trying to skirt this balance and, and it creates a ton of anxiety for me to be totally honest about focusing on like near term deal flow and coaching versus building and optimizing the machine so that we can be repeatable in our process and execute and plug people in without like having this massive handholding exercise necessary every time you're bringing someone else on board. Right. So my anxiety is that I probably waited personally too long to start hiring that kind of person. So what I'd say is like my advice is at MuleSoft, I had them way sooner than I should have. And that was the reason we were able to go from seven people in one office to 67 people in five. And I, I would encourage everyone to hire ahead on those sort of augmentee type roles. Good advice. So let's finish this. The last thing that I want to ask before we get into the way that we wrap this up, the same with everyone. Um, cause, and this is something I wish I had more time to get into. I, like I could talk to you for three or mm-hmm. four hours instead of 45, 50 minutes, dude. Thank you, by the way. This has been a killer conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, Stephen. You're, you're, this has been fun. Thank you. So I'm thinking about what you just said, that balancing act on winning now and, and, and stay healthy and scale for later. And then I overlay that. I have that sitting on thing number two of you where you say you want to be focused on fundamentals. Mm-hmm. How do you build an organization? Like for, We don't have a lot of time on this, so this is just mm-hmm. going to be kind of one or two th- top-of-mind thoughts. As you're the leader that's building that organization that's focused on fundamentals, how do you have fundamentals balance the importance of winning now but still building for a future? Any any comments around that? Because sometimes I find people go all now or all future and they lose one or the other. Yeah. So I think that – Do you see that? I guess that first one, do you see that? Uh, I, I, I see that I am terrible at finding that balance right now. (laughs) And I think you have to focus on like, what can you as a sales leader personally take on to stamp out that will drive like the biggest impact long-term and what can't you focus on? Like, where are you going to get an inch deep and a mile wide on 10 different things? Versus like, what is the one thing you fundamentally are amazing at that you should be focused on stamping out? And then again, I go back to like, who can you hire who you can surround yourself with that can focus on taking those 10 things you got an inch deep on and going a mile wide in stack ranked priority order? Ah. I, I like, I am terrible at finding that balance. It, it totally racks me with anxiety from time to time. And, <laughs> and, you know, luckily, like I look down and I'm reminded of how wonderful the Aloha spirit is and it reinvigorates me. But man, like, I wish I had a better answer. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the hardest jobs in sales. And since you went there, I wanted to get your take on it. Cause I love your, like you have a really well thought out approach to the parts of sales leadership. And if there's one thing that strikes me as I listen to you, Stephen, that I, I would suggest that our listeners is, you're not out there just winging it. You're certainly working hard. You're certainly worried about all the things that go into being a sales leader. But it, it's very clear to me that you have a really structured approach. I love how you said you stack rank even the priorities. So mm-hmm. you know, like, what are the things I have to win and what are the things that I hope I win? But I'm going to make sure I win the things I have to win. That's mm-hmm. the way I hear you. Mm-hmm. Am I hearing mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Yeah. And And, like, how do you sort of, you know, make sure that the people on your team aren't sort of beholden to being – you know, even if they're the best people possible, the best athletes, right? Like sales athletes, there's all this talk about a sales athlete, but like the analog or the sort of analogy that I like is like the best sales athlete isn't going to like just pick up a bowling ball and bowl 300 and always hit strikes, right? So like, how do you as a sales leader focus on, you know, ensuring that they're not bowling, they're bumper bowling so that they can't throw gutter balls. Like that's actually your job is avoid gutter balls on behalf of your team instead of like getting them to a place where they just show up and bowl 300. I love that. So if you can eliminate the gutter balls, you're going to get some strikes and spares along the way. Yep. But if I can have a team that never takes a zero, big things happen. I love that, that, that approach, that, that completely I buy into that because I believe if everybody can be getting 
10% better, call it, no matter where they are. Mm-hmm. If we can have everybody. So if my stars are getting predictably better all the way to my lowest performers getting predictably better, all of a sudden the team has no limit. Yeah. That, and, 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 and just to put a like bow on that, yeah. look, if, if you like have one litmus test as a sales leader, it's like, can you sit down with the sales person at the end of a deal, whether you win it or lose it and feel like they can articulate the fact that they're really proud of the work they did and they did everything in their power to sort of de-risk that deal. And if not, like also like, do they understand what they fundamentally need to do better? And do they do that the next time? But like, you've got to realize like going back to special operations, like you could plan the perfect raid, but sometimes there's just a barricaded shooter and you're kind of screwed when you show up, right? Like sometimes you just are selling into an organization that two days before a deal is going to close based on the mutual success plan you have in place. They have a reduction in force and 30% of the company gets fired. Like, but can you be proud of the work that you did both as a salesperson and as a sales leader, equipping that person to be successful. Like that's the ultimate litmus test. That's the bow, man. That's a great way to end our conversation and get into this wrap up. Can you create a team where the way you lead them on every deal, win or lose, you're proud of the work you did. I love that. Uh, again, you've brought a lot of stuff we've not ever heard on our show before, Steve. And I, I, uh, <laughs> I love the, the lens that you look through brother. Thank, um, thank let's you. get, Let's get into the rapid fire. You ready? Three questions, uh, three quick answers. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Number one, biggest sales leadership challenge that you see and how do you beat it? I, I Again, I go back to balancing the focus on the near term, like deal coaching and execution and being great at sales fundamentals and building for scale. I think the way you solve it, you hire ahead on getting those augmentee type roles in place. Like, don't don't hire your next AE until you're confident that that next AE is going to be stepping into a process where they can find success. Bam. Great one. Love it. Number two, and I can't wait to hear this one because you've talked so much about being uncompromising in who you hire. Our listeners have asked that we ask every one of our, our, um, our guests, what's your kind of go-to question? And if it's not a question, what's your go-to thing you want to learn when you're selecting people? Yeah, I, the, my go-to interview question is, I want people to tell me about a time they were set up for failure. And the reason I ask that question is, first and foremost, if, like, you'll immediately know whether or not someone is growth-oriented based on how they answer it, right? If they say something to the effect of, like, well, this one time my boss gave me this territory and it was terrible, <laughs> versus someone who's truly growth-oriented tends to answer it in a way where they're like, huh. Well, I can't really think about a time I was set up for failure. However, a time I was set or a time that I failed was X, Y, or Z. And what I did in order to learn from that failure was A, B, and C. Well, like then you actually see two things. Like one, they're internalizing responsibility versus externalizing blame. Two, they actually are like viewing that failure as an opportunity to learn and grow. Hmm. And three, that they actually like, went and did something with it. And hopefully there's some quantifiable or qualitative data that says like that failure made them excellent. Great answer. Man, this is, this is fun. Last one. Okay. Leaders or readers. Uh, I don't care if it's a page that you turn or an audible you listen to or a podcast or a blog or whatever. Is there something that you would recommend to our listeners? If you want to continue to advance and develop your leadership skills and journey, what's something you ought to be putting inside that dome? Yeah. So, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give you two, like listen to, to listen to the sales leadership podcast. Bam. <laughs> I, I like, seriously, if you're a sales leader, absolutely do that. Second of all, the best book on leadership that I've read, and I'm, I'm not just biased because this guy was the commander of second ranger battalion at one point, but I think principally the way he leads in the, the sort of um, framework that he lays out is the single best leadership book that's been written in the past five or 10 years is Team of Teams by Stan McChrystal. And the reason it's such a powerful read is that it talks about this idea that as a leader, your job is to do two things. Like, first and foremost, create the kind of environment where there's this shared consciousness. Like, everyone understands and is on the same page, both culturally and in terms of, like, being in the know. 
So Stan McChrystal took very siloed special operations units, combined them with like, you know, a bunch of three-letter organizations and government agencies yeah. and basically created Joint Special Operations Command and, like, get, didn't create them, but really empowered that organization to operate in a way where the leaders of the respective units had the autonomy to go and run, like, you know, sort of, feed, like, micro-feeders that were the size of, like, large U.S. states in some cases. Wow. And, and what he did was he did two things. He created this shared consciousness where everyone was in the know. And then he empowered execution. So, like, if someone would ask a question in their sort of all-hands meeting, he would actually use it as a, an opportunity to codify, like, his intent. Like, like, if someone said, hey, Stan, if you're asleep and we're under, you know, withering fire and we need to drop a 2,000-pound bomb and I've de-risked the situation, like, do you really need to wake up to press yes? Or like give your, you know, blessing. And he said, no. And like, here's my intent. Right. And Kyle Morris does a much better job about talking about the concept of commander's intent on your podcast. Yeah, so I think everyone should listen that. to it. I like that. Yeah. That's a good episode. So it's, it's like, again, go back to focusing as a leader on creating a shared consciousness. And once you do that, you can empower execution. Love like it. you can give people the autonomy to go and execute, but also the confidence that they're executing in line with your intent. So good, man. Steven, we are done. This was a, I mean, you have so much depth. Congratulations first on your success. Uh, I, I have no doubt we're going to see Bevy Labs be a, another rising star. You're going to have a lot of people that are going to want to connect with you as a result of being here. How do they continue the conversation? How do they learn more about you? How do they get in touch with you? How do they learn more about Bevy? How do they keep this conversation going if they want to pick it up? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, if if you're looking to build the kind of, you know, community that the Salesforce Trailblazers of the world have done or the Marketo user groups of the world have done, Bevy is at Bevy Labs, B-E-V-Y, Labs. So Bravo, Ector, Echo, Victor, Yankee. Lima Alpha Bravo Sierra.com. <laughs> and I can be found on Twitter at Stephen Brody. There's a U in there. Blame Ellis Island. Um, and <laughs> on LinkedIn. And, and again, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure I can learn a hell of a lot more from the people who are, um, listening to this than they can learn from me, but I'm absolutely happy to help. And Rob, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast and in many ways in the company of so many great sales leaders. Hey, you've, you've been fantastic. This is the man that has been, been accidentally involved, but intentionally successful. <laughs> He's bringing bumper bowling approach to sales and kicking some more than his share of ass, uh, wherever the mission is. Stephen Brody, thank you so much for joining us. And as we say to everyone, happy selling. Happy selling. Thank you, Rob. Hey, everyone. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed that. What a fantastic interview. What a fantastic conversation. I love the concept of bringing a special operations mindset to building a high-growth sales team. We sign up for a very, very difficult mission. Sales is a challenging profession. Uh, we're in a world where our prospects and our customers are being hit by everybody and their dog. Uh, finding a way that you can build a team that can cut through the noise and can do a great job is a real challenge. And I just loved his approach, the three things, you know, his his trifecta of how to be intentionally successful, even though you might be accidentally involved, like Stephen. Um, the, the, the most important one to me was his concept of being un uncompromising on who you hire. I love that approach. It's the most unique approach that I've heard. Go back and listen to that again on interviewing for those for those core values, and one person owns each of those values. And if anybody is a fail on any of those values, the, the candidate is a fail. And, and really go back and ask yourself, do I have a selection and assessment criteria, or do we just have a whole bunch of people interview and then we kind of hope we get the right person? Uh, I think that if all you get from this is a mindset of selection and assessment, so you are uncompromising, it will make it so you can successfully accomplish your mission every quarter, every year, far more successfully. Uh, I, I thought the conversation on, on point number two on focusing on fundamentals, uh, that's uh, that was just awesome. Make sure that we're not just trying to get the most gifted people. Make sure that we are getting people that are coachable. And maybe more importantly, do you have a special ops training and enablement uh, approach to, to how you make that happen? And, and then the final one. 
is focus on customer success rather than individual success. And if you do that, you'll find that this trifecta of awesomeness will make it so you can have bumper bowling in your sales team. I want to thank Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to each of you for listening to us. Keep sending us your questions. Keep sending us your uh, suggestions for people that you want on the show. Uh, and keep giving us those five-star uh, five star reviews. We want as many of those as we can get because that really is the best way to have other people find out about the show. And if, And as we go into this last push of the year, don't let the pressure get to you. Just remember, don't worry. Just execute because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exvoyant, the modern sales leadership platform for salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.